You're listening to Monday Science Podcast, the show that brings you the latest in science, technology and health with your host, me, Dr. Bahija Rami Abraham. On today's episode, we have the amazing Dr. David Leslie. Hello, David. How are you? Hi, I'm doing great. Nice to be here, Bahija. Perfect. Lovely. So let's just start off with, if you could please um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I mean, I guess I've always described myself as a kind of um, itinerant intellectual, you know, in, in terms of just, you know, being very interested in the, in the world. But uh, I guess over the last seven or eight years, I've really focused a little bit more on thinking about the ethics of technology. Uh, I was kind of raised up uh, as a as a philosopher, uh, thinking about, you know, how how things in the biggest sense of the word fit together in the biggest sense of the word, you know, that kind of trying to make sense of, the, of of our existence. And so, but, you know, now now I focused a little bit more and, and uh, I'm uh, currently the ethics theme lead at the Alan Turing Institute, uh, where we basically, um, we do a lot of work uh, in, in supporting the public sector um, to, to, to sort of design and develop uh, responsible technologies and, uh, you know, applied data science and artificial intelligence. Uh, and then uh, we also, do I think just as much work in what we might think of as AI and society. So this this is this idea that data intensive technologies and you know artificial intelligence, whatever, however we want to define that, um, is not just a uh, technical phenomenon in the world, but rather it's also a socio technical phenomenon. In other words, there are, are deep cultural, historical, political, economic um, conditions of possibility for technology, and, and we really need to look at. Um, all of our technologies, including AI and, and data-intensive technologies, um, in in that in in those circumstances, that we need to understand um, what are the material conditions of production, um, how um, how are they impacting the individuals and communities they affect, that sort of thing. And so now, now I, I guess I would sort of identify more with thinking in that space. Although I think it's really important, uh, even when you concentrate on things like that. Uh, to remain sort of uh, have a wide angled lens, if you will, and, and, and also think about the bigger picture of not just, you know, our contemporary society, but our situation as a species and our situation in terms of our place in the in the greater biosphere, in the, in the greater kind of scheme of, of, you know, living, living beings on Earth. Amazing. And, and it's I mean, I'm so so I'm also very grateful for you to be on here because I've been on my own journey of understanding with AI and, and tech. And when you talk about, you know, the ethics of technology, and I think this is such a timely conversation in particular, you know, this year where tech has been really like even more so in the forefront and, and more front of discussions and, and everything. Um, and I think for, so one of the reasons why I wanted to invite you on to, um, uh, the podcast is because that focus, that discussion around the ethics of tech and the ethics of AI, I think we need more of that in a in a way and in a in, with choice vocabulary so the masses can understand if if, if, if that Absolutely. makes sense. Um, so before we get into it, I like definitions. I always like to make sure we're all on the same page. So could you please give us, well, it doesn't have to be as formal as a definition, but if you mm. could explain to us what is AI? So what is artificial intelligence? Wow. So I'll, I'll just say that uh, I shouldn't actually 
I should I shouldn't divulge this, but when you know when we're when we're doing interviews for you know candidates who are going to come and work with us at the institute in the in the public policy program, that is one of our interview questions. So you're giving me you're feeding it back to me. So I mean, one way I think I think the the um, I think the best starting point in thinking about um, what AI or artificial intelligence is uh, is to think about um, uh, effective, effectively computable systems, so algorithmic systems, computational systems that operate um, in the world uh, and serve cognitive sur sur surrogate cognitive functions. So they stand in for um, in. Uh, informed or in intelligent activities that um, if done uh, in the world are likely to have been done by an intelligent being, a human being. And, uh, and so I think, you know, from that sort of starting point, we can really think of AI in a functional way, which is to say when we think about what artificial intelligence is in the world, it's those me mechanistic systems that are standing in for us um, in predicting something, classifying something, um, identifying clusters of things. And at the end of the day, these are, are probabilistic and statistical programs for the most part, and, and some in, incorporate you know, logic, logic as well, logical systems as well. Um, but at the end of the day, they're, they're, they're mechanistic. They're, as you would say, syn syntactic. Now, uh, syntactic meaning they, they, they are processing binary um, based upon sets of procedures and rules rather than, um, in a sense, understanding and, and coping with the openness of meaning in the world, which is what we do when we kind of navigate all of the uncertainty um, and, and work through language and communicate with each other. Uh, now, that starting point, I think, is, uh, as a definition, an, an important one, but I think it's also important to step back and really think about um, AI in terms of the complexity of, of the supply chain of what AI is. So AI is really highly dependent upon a whole um, set of, of human practices um, that, that go straight from the very early moments of how we build the hardware how, you know how we're able to build the hardware, the the silicon-based hardware behind uh, computational systems. That's that we have to think about that when we think about AI, because there yeah. are certain accessibility and entry costs that come along with having access to to certain degrees of of effectiveness and quality in those you know those material um, parts. Uh, but but we also have to think of the other various components of the supply chain. So the data that's collected, right? The um, the medium of, uh, of 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 delivering the systems. So think about the you know fiber optics, the internet, all of the various you know cloud computing platforms, data lakes, and you know all of the other uh, components of in, of infrastructure that are necessary for AI to exist. And then you know there's there's even at the higher level a whole set of uh, procedures and expertise and levels of education and uh, corporate corporate and government capacities that uh, factor into the way that uh, the AI uh, systems, the algorithmic systems, are are constructed and produced. Right, so it takes a, a high degree of um, expertise to to build out these types of mechanical systems, and all of this is part of the AI supply chain. And, and so I think we really, if we're gonna really confront 
the the bigger picture issues in society and ethics that have that are related to so-called AI artificial intelligence we, we really do need to be aware of that kind of wider s schema of, of 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 you know materials and processes yeah because I, I guess with when I think of AI and artificial intelligence I, I think um in a very, I guess, in the cloud sense, which is obviously not accurate. And when you talk about when you were mentioning the fiber optics, things, I was like, oh yes, of course, because you need to have a computer or whatever platform that has enough capabilities to handle the AI. Um, I just wanted to, before we move on to the next question, logic. That I remember a friend of mine studied philosophy. A friend I, I had a friend of mine that studied philosophy at university, and logic is a form of philosophy. Is that right? Or, it is. Yes. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Some some would say, I mean, it, it depends on on what type of sort of school, school of thinking uh, that you uh, that you subscribe to in philosophy. But, you know, some philosophers would say that logic is the most kind of basic philosophy, because if you think about um, you think about language itself, like, we, you know, we think about, oh, we're. Um, what what Heidegger called Zoan Logon Echon, where we're we're uh, we're animals that kind of navigate the world in, in, in language. And, and if we think of ourselves as linguistic beings, uh, some philosophers would say, well, what is the very kind of basis of, of language? How do we understand language? And, and Chomsky, for instance, um, builds out a, a very interesting uh, system of, of thinking about language that, that is absolutely anchored in the, the fundamentals of logic, the, the kind of this, 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 capacity for recursive enumerability in combining symbols um, in particular uh, based upon particular rules and in accordance with particular mm -hmm. rules. And so, you know, lo logic, I think, is a very important part of when uh, of, of how we think of artificial intelligence. Also, um, really quickly, just historically, you know, artificial intelligence first emerged uh, or the 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 kind of field of artificial intelligence first emerged in the mid 1950s, and uh, around that time, so originally 1956, the, there were uh, various camps that wanted to kind of think and talk about what um, complex information processing actually is uh, or was, and uh, and and that was the starting point of of thinking about what AI. I mean, we thought about how do, how 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 does information processing happen. And so from the 1950s for the next uh, decades, I would say, um, what we call GoFi, good old fashioned artificial intelligence was logic based, it was symbol based. Uh, and so for instance, we thought that uh, we could uh, address a lot of the problems in the world, right? By starting with um, rules and then, um, you know, in a sense, anticipating the activities in the world based upon logical rules and how those logical rules fit together. I'll also say that um, at the very beginning, even earlier, at the very beginning of the creation of, of uh, computational systems, this is, I have to mention this because I'm from the Alan Turing <laughs> Institute, but Alan Turing himself um, basically was navigating the world of metamathematics and, and logic and, and the way that we uh, came to define what would come to be known as as, a, as a, a Turing machine and then a universal Turing machine was was th through a kind of uh, um, through a kind of delivery of of logic through through I mean Turing you know, in a sense detranscendentalized logic and, and made it yeah. more practical but at that point um, computational systems and computational infrastructures 
uh, came to be based on what we call Boolean logic. So very simple, you know, and, or, and nands um, signs. And that's all logic um, at the end of the day. So when, when your computer, when our computers right now are operating in the, you know, go, what's going on in the electrical pulses are all logical operations, what we would call. So logic is, logic is, is omnipresent in where we are right now it's just it's thank you so much for that because it's so fascinating when you see how different um disciplines different fields all come together for that one thing because I, I don't think people would understand that we think artificial intelligence we think tech and you've in just in the first few minutes you've blown my mind because you've highlighted the actual the impact of philosophy in that in the build-up in the considerations um so in a way, it's sort of unifying us all a little bit more. Um, okay, so what are the four principles of explainable AI? What does that mean? What is explainable AI? <laughs> Sorry. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so we, you know, in a sense, we, we're, we're at a point now, uh, just to, to step back for a second, where um, our capacities to process information, um, just in terms of the actual um, underlying uh, hardware, um, have increased over the last couple decades um, in, in ways that have enabled us to use um, what we call very high dimensional um, models, right? So uh, for instance, uh, we can use you know, artificial neural nets that might have as many as millions or, or even billions, if you, if you think about you know, more recent systems, parameters that are, that are kind of operating um, when the system is is inputting data, and and those billion or millions of parameters are are basically acting as as a mapping function that allows a system to come up with a classification or prediction or 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 whatever this you know whatever the purpose of the model is, and you know one of the one of the challenges for us as human beings is that we can build these things right, but our Semantics, so our level of our capacity to understand the moving parts of the world, are are in a sense limited. Uh, so you you know you and I, when we think about uh, the interactions of variables in the world, we're maybe able to, at, at any given time to think of a few variables at a single point to to think about well, a causes b or a is related to b, and so we can think of a few factors and understand their relationships and and that for us gives access to an interpretation of a context or a situation. What, what, what changes with these high dimensional, very complex models is that it's not, it's not just that, that there are a few factors that are, that are determinative of, of an output or prediction, but there are like literally, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions, billions of, of factors um, that are intertwined in various ways. And, that that comes to be beyond uh, what we would call human scale reasoning in the sense that we just can't hold all of those things together in our mind right so for instance a, a support uh, vector machine might have uh what what, it, what what it's doing is it might be separating variables um so say there were so so say there were only sort of two uh two parameters it would be se sort of separating variables with a, with a with a line is to separate them in one dimension but now keep adding keep adding dimensions to it and suddenly we're okay thinking three dimensions maybe four dimensions mm -hmm. but then you know uh, uh, one of these models might be thinking in 85 dimensions and and we you know we just simply can't 
the, the, the way our experience in the world works and the way that our understanding works, we don't have the capacity in a sense to, to, to sort of work in that space. And so explainable or interpretable AI is dealing with this dilemma in the sense that when we think about, well, how do we come to understand um, the rationale behind a system like a neural net or, you know, uh, some of these other complex systems, a random forest, uh, which um, is, you know, is, is another sort of complex model. Uh, how do we how do we sort of gain a grasp or a foothold uh, in, the, in, in, in understanding why or how uh, a set of inputs are transformed into an output or a set of outputs? And and so explainable uh, AI or um, interpretable AI, I think they're slightly different. We can talk about that in a second, but it has to do with um, ensuring that any given system um, is appropriately um, understandable in, in plain language to those who are impacted by the system. And, and that, that, that really means a lot in the sense that, uh, so if I have a, 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 a very impactful system, say it's a predictive risk model, right? That um, is predicting the um, the let's just think of a, a case in say in children's social care because we, we we published a report on this um, earlier this year. So if I have a if I have a, a predictive risk model in children's social care, that's supposed to be decision support for uh, a social care uh, worker who who is trying to sort of predict the risk of of a, a of a child given a set of conditions. Um, a set of inputs that are put into the in, into a certain algorithmic model. Uh, I'm I'm definitely going to want to have a system that is um, accessible both to the to the social care worker and and to the impacted family, um, because we we want to understand well what are the what are the determinative factors and, and yeah. correlations that are that are factoring into the into the production of a high risk score and an output. And the only way that we're able to do that and under, sort of understand um, those determinative factors in the context of the particular person's situation is by having, a, as we would say, a transparent system. And, um, and so interpretability is being able to understand the system and explainability is being able to understand that, uh, being able to explain that interpretation to people. And, um, this is important for a lot of reasons. Uh, first, uh, because the uh, a system that isn't transparent won't give us access to potential um, factors that are biased or discriminatory when we when we sort of lift up the hood and try to understand well, well you know what are the what are the possible confounding factors here or, or what are the potential historical um, biases that have made inroads into the system. If you don't have a transparent system, <clears throat> you won't simply won't be able to understand the the kind of bigger picture of the potential um, harms that 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 might be done by that system um, in terms of the social costs. Um, and then at the same time, if it's a highly impactful system, say um, in medical or clinical diagno diagnostics, if you don't have an interpretable system, first it won't provide. Uh, evidence, uh, a decision support for evidence-based reasoning. But second, it won't, in a sense, uh, support uh, assuredly safe outcomes. Because if you can't interpret a system, one then won't be sure if it's brittle in a certain uh, situation that becomes um, 
unfamiliar or in, a, in novel situations that haven't been accounted for in the mapping function. So in, in explainability and interpretability is crucial for us to, to be able to use these systems in impactful environments. Um, and so, yeah. No, that's uh, the the link with healthcare is actually what started my own personal journey trying to understand ethics. Uh, being a pharmacist, my research is in drug development and all that stuff. So it's like, how does this? Because we're seeing more um, research that's including, or and 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 I mean this in all. Uh, I don't mean it to sound as judgmental, but sometimes. Uh, as you would know with research, things can be a buzzword, right? Yeah. It's like you can say, oh, everything is now including AI and oh, we're doing deep learning. But I and I, I don't feel that people fully understand sometimes in other sectors where we're just coming in and we're trying to understand and we're seeing through the grapevine that these tools that we're learning of can help sure. um, help us somehow in our research. But then I think there's that, there's that gap in... I was going to say, yeah, gap in understanding, but maybe gap in appreciation for these sorts of considerations, because I was just I'm taking notes here, by the way, it's like a, I'm enjoying myself. <laughs> but I was just that when you were talking about the when you explained the explainable AI, then you needed to also be transparent and being able to make evidence based decisions that obviously obviously that's important because that's what we're oh. trying on a human level. That's what we're trying to do. So if you don't give the AI the platform with the ability to be able to do that then you're going to get negative outcomes and actually because i did read uh, the draft i'm actually looking at my notes at n-i-s-t-i-r-831 <laughs> document but i i noticed there was a section that said humans as a comparison group for explainable ai could you what what is that what does that mean and could you just explain um explain what that means and and how humans are used as a comparison for AI or, or any other tech? Is that something that happens? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, so let me also just quickly say, uh, in, you mentioned um, sort of uh, the, the role of AI in, 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 in drugs and the development of drugs. And this is this has really been uh, an important part uh, of the of the COVID-19 response to that, that we've had that we have been able to marshal certain algorithmic systems, highly complex ones, to support in drug discovery. And, and, and I think there is something to be said also here um, for the, the more complex systems in, in scientific discovery. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we will be able to use um, what we would consider opaque systems as a, as a helpful tool in, in scientific discovery because uh, these systems can pick up patterns, right, that are inaccessible to us that then can be used by researchers um, in an evidence-based way, of course, but but they could be uncovered by certain um, algorithmic systems and then come to help and support um, innovation on our side of things, right? And, and so there is a role, I think, for the more complex systems, but we really need to keep them um, keep them in, in the appropriate place and understand that uh, when you're using a system like that, uh, you know, we need to, it's important to try to understand it in the first place. But, um, but you know, there are real advantages to being able to process very, very complex data through these systems in terms of our ability to gain insight about, you know, the environment, insight about, you know, the 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 universe in general and uh, and so I just I would flag that that uh, 
that it's important to also make distinct imp distinctions, say, between the way we would use a, a decision support system, um, which has a very different function than, uh, say, a drug discovery uh, system that that's working on, you know, I, I, you know, you've got these systems that are basically they're they're being inputted with studies, right? Thousands and thousands of studies and finding proximities between, you know, effect effective drugs, right? And um, and so that would take human beings, you know, hundreds of years to do the same work, right? But it's just it's basically assisting us to to mm. to, to cut through and find some patterns that that we might not have have seen otherwise. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say uh, in terms of the the uh, comparisons between uh, humans and AI, I mean, I think we should take. It, sh it should give us pause when when we um, take a, the technological tool and give it some sort of independent status. Um, I don't believe that that's the, the right approach in general. I think we should always treat these as um, tools of our own design, of, of as the philosophers would say, that arise from our will and artifice, right? That we we, we make these things, right? We've, we're the creators of these things. And and for that reason, I think they, they, they're always embedded in, in our practices in ways that we we shouldn't compare because I think it's it's a it's a it's a bad starting point, if you will, uh, because it's like you're creating a in a sense, you're creating this whole kind of, you know, mythical independence of something which is actually a socio-technical product right um, yeah. and I think that that's been some of the so, some of the um, uh, uh, traveling down uh, I think unhelpful paths in contemporary AI has been caused by this kind of conception that AI has this independent kind of status from beyond that goes beyond yeah. our, our using it to to try to help our situation and I think that's where also the potential for fear of AI comes in when you, because it's, it from what I'm understanding in particular from this conversation, it's um, whatever you create, if you don't apply the right, well, whatever you can, you create has the potential to, you know, expand and do its own thing. And as you mentioned, that sort of the dimensions of thinking and how humans limitation in the number of dimensions they can think versus the computer, that means that you've got that sort of a just completely different system going beyond our own potential of understanding. And so therefore, if you um, if you allow that to run wild, as it were, and then rely on that in a way that you're giving it ownership, not just of itself, but potentially ownership of you, mm -hmm. then you can, and, I, I, and I'm guessing, is that sort of one of those big, because you mentioned, you actually, I noticed you called it like contemporary AI. So is that one of the challenges now with contemporary AI, this potential of letting the, the, the well, I, and I don't know if I'm saying, if I'm sort of explaining this right, but allowing the system to be its own Thing. I don't know if you've seen yeah. the film Transcendence with um, Johnny Depp. I don't know if that's a, a sort of taboo film to, <laughs> to talk about with somebody in AI, but I, I think that's a, a, an interesting film where, you know, I don't know, you have you seen it? You have seen it. <laughs> I've seen yeah. it, yeah. And I'm just, I'm using that as my point of reference, but well, with other things, but you know, that potential of a system allowing it to grow and develop, and then it forms its own opinion and it forms its own entity yeah. and it decides this is actually what I believe now is moral mm -hmm. or not so is that that's also come, I guess some of the challenges yeah 
Yeah, I mean, so the, the transcendence is a nice example uh, because actually the, 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 there's a, a book that was published last year by Stuart Russell called Human Compatible. And, and he uses that, uh, that book as a you know, couple of instant sort of examples from that book as, as a way to help the readers sort of understand his perspective on superintelligence and, and how the development of artificial general intelligence um, would lead to uh, potential misalignments, if you will, uh, between, you know, the intentions of the creator, right, and, and the so-called, you know, intentions of the created. And so from my perspective, um, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm critical of that um, point of view, because ultimately what is being done there is, is a kind of projection, right? So there's, there's agency creep in the sense that we, you and I sort of, we have a beating heart and we feel agency and life in the world. And so we'll tend to, to see animated things, even, you know, mechanically animated things um, from that projective perspective. And that, that's not something that's new to superintelligent AI. That's the very origins of animism and, and ancient totemism and various other religious kind of self-conceptions. And so one of the uh, one of the sort of cautionary moments, I think, of our contemporary life is that we're, we're becoming, in a sense, uh, better and better uh, at um, uh, create sort of creating machinery that um, seems like it has the type of, you know, lifeblood agency that we have and, and that that in a sense, it causes some misconceptions about what's actually going on. Uh, and and, and it's, it's a dangerous thing because, you know, we will tend to um, see ourselves uh, as the fancy word is like the demiurges, creators, like it, the, the whole idea of us being able to kind of create the next intelligent agent, right, is uh, I think it arises from a very crypt, kind of crypto religious point of view. And um, I have no doubt that we can create dangerous um, instruments, um, given the fact that we are able now to use statistical and probabilistic programs like reinforcement learning and reverse reinforcement learning to um, have systems that are able to sort of, you know, operate independently in open environments. I mean, we, we, ha we have capacity to create autonomous, so-called autonomous systems, right? But it doesn't mean that those systems are endowed with the, the kind of agency that we would understand in, in our kind of uh, biological, uh, from our biological starting point. And, uh, and, and, and so it's, it's a real, uh, we face a real hazard that uh, we we start to sort of uh, get out of our lanes, if you will, right? So when we when we think or talk about what um, what what the potential is for artificial intelligence, I mean, this is this has been this is one of the reasons why it, the the actual name itself is is an issue because you know intelligence is 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 something that is not a uh, it, we would say. It, 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 it is not perspicuous language if we think about what science, what, what data science or artificial intelligence science can actually do, right? It's not, it, it, it's not something that, 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 that has a constrained and falsifiable, um, you know, way of, uh, 
of being you know verified or thought about in the world and and so we'll tend to be become very kind of um uh, intellectually licentious we tend to become sloppy when we start to talk about in, even in transcendence when we start to talk about the the kind of you know yeah. machines coming to have these these kind of very human-like or, or even beyond like superhuman-like uh, agential capacities and mm. um, can I ask you when you talked about the autonomous systems that have been created where is there, there do you have any examples of everyday um everyday interactions that somebody could have with an autonomous system that's been created by AI yeah, I mean, so things that are being developed and we can think of, of you know, unmanned aerial vehicles, um, we can think of mm. autonomous uh, cars, right, autonomous vehicles. Mm. Uh, I mean, there, there's, there's a, a, just a, a ton of possibilities in the, um, in, in the rising Internet of everything and the rising Internet of things where we would have uh, systems that are interacting with open environments. Uh, and us being part of those open environments, where they're they're not in a sense uh, pre-programmed uh, to have a kind of a direct um, and uh, knowable response in advance of the operation, right? And so one of the things that makes a a, a system fully autonomous is that it it won't have the the type of um, advanced design time, uh, pre-programmed reaction to environmental situations um, that we can, you know, specify and regulate and control in, in, in familiar ways. And, uh, and so, you know, you, you have this uh, th thinking just about autonomous vehicles, like, you know, cars, right? Yeah. Um, you, you have these situations now where if, if you have an autonomous vehicle on an open highway, it, it's a, a much more manageable situation because mm -hmm. the, the 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 various conditions are much more controllable, and and the and and the kind of uh, decisions made by the system are 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 not uh, seem to be more. It's assured. not complex. Yeah, it's not complex. But now put that autonomous vehicle in an urban environment where you've got you know children running into the street and you've got you know, n novel and 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 uh, culturally specific activities, practices, reactions all around, and and how then, it, if if it is a truly autonomous system, which is what the aim is ultimately for these things, how then does that very complex system um, uh, operate in in that very complex environment in ways that uh, in ways that are uh, safe and 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 that uh, we we could justify as a so, so say we were manufacturing one of these things like yeah. how can we how can we justify that the autonomous vehicle made a left right and swerved to avoid you know this person or object and hit this person or object instead right i mean so mm -hmm. there's a whole kind of uh, another series of problems that arise in, in that in that type of situation it's fascinating and and it's also just shows that I, I was going to say we're not quite there yet, but I don't even know if that's the aim, if it's like we should be getting to, well, I, I don't know, I'm just saying from my opinion, don't know if that, that is the aim, like let's get to the point where these um, autonomous systems are so perfect that they can judge everything, or maybe it's 
more to see what their limitations are and then put them in an environment that better works for them um, as well. But I actually would like to start talking a bit more about your research, um, because I, when you mentioned earlier about um, the use of AI in uh, social care, so I, I wasn't aware, and I think this is one of the joys of being able to um, speak to experts such as yourself, is just to learn just different things but also to learn where like in your case I didn't know that machine learning was being used or AI was being used in social care um so yeah can you would you be able to just touch on that a little bit more like how it's being used you did allude to it earlier but just a bit more detail and what are the ethical considerations if anything in that space mm. Yeah, so uh, one of the things, I mean, especially in the UK situation, which we really need to, to sort of focus on, do a better job of, of just understanding um, the state of play and how uh, local authorities are, are using uh, data-driven innovation, data-intensive data systems um, to support and uh, to um, work alongside of social care workers who are dealing with really highly impactful, high-stakes situations with families and children. <clears throat> and uh, so I think that the uh, it, is, it, it is in use. Um, certain systems, predictive risk models are in use um, around the UK in children's social care in particular. And, um, and there, are, there are a set of, of ethical issues that come along with that, uh, not least uh, and not, I would say actually not least, but first and foremost, um, are issues of potential bias and discrimination that arise from these, uh, a given social care situation. It's, it's not, a, it, 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 it's not a, a mystery to those who study this area that um, a lot of the, 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 the social management that comes along in social care environments are in situations that um, uh, are have a high concentration of, of marginalization and poverty. And it's the, these very, the very communities and populations that are most impacted in this area are those who tend to be, in a sense, um, what we would say over surveilled or, or over measured because they, they're involved in the social services um, from very early on and they're in areas that might have over policing, say. And so, the, the data sets that are, are being used to form the feature spaces of these predictive um, risk models uh, as they're used, you know, if they are used as a decision support for social care, they have uh, overrepresentation of certain populations and underrepresentation of certain populations. And so there are major issues about um, not just reinforcing cycles of, of poverty and discrimination and, and, and also, you know, systemic racism in, in, in many ways um, in, 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 the U, in the U.S. context, especially here. Um, but uh, it's not only, it's not only the, the reinforcement, but the augmentation ultimately, because when you've got a system that comes to be predictive and is informing decisions that are, that are uh, putting more uh, uh, families uh, in, in high risk, in, in situations where decisions are made based upon an understanding of high risk, then that data, that becomes data, and that then comes to be fed forward into the next kind of set of, of systems. And so, you know, this is one, you know, big issue that we really need to think uh, clearly about when, when we think about applying data science in this area. Um, in, the, in the report, we talk a lot about how it might be 
because we have limited resources, when we think about how we use data science, data and data science in these situations, it might be better to, to sort of think about redirecting resources to gaining a better grasp of the causal factors that are behind those situations of bias and discrimination. And that, that might do, do a lot more good in informing you know, the social care system and how to uh, transform relationships and have more sort of family-centered um, and, and supportive environments for children and families. Uh, other other uh, risks uh, that we think about in terms of the ethics are, I think this one's intuitive, but if you think about the relationship of the social care worker to a family and to, the ch to children, yes. this is an interpersonal relationship. It's a relationship that um, is highly reliant on not just empathy, that's you know essential, but it's not just that. It's also a kind of uh, a common a, a commonality and trust that the judgment of the social care worker is really kind of giving due consideration to the particular circumstances of the family. And in that in in that situation, if you displace uh, the that relationship between the family and the social care worker, um, by incorporating automation, you, you can, un, in a sense, undermine the connection. And, and that's something we really need to be aware of uh, when we think about the use of these systems. It's not to say that uh, as a controlled component of uh, decision support, maybe not directly individually impacting decision support, but general decision support, the data intensive systems might not be useful. But it is to say that our first priority has to be to think about that relationship, because at the end of the day, it's, it's, the, it's that relationship um, that, will, that will, in a sense, support better outcomes um, for, um, for people. The other, uh, I mean, there's a, there are a couple of others, but but one I would also flag is what 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 I mean, you know, you're probably familiar with it. We call it garbage in, garbage out, which is to say, mm -hmm. if if you don't have sufficient data quality um, and sufficient considerations of uh, how to include data in a in an algorithmic system, the, the right way to do it, uh, you know, having an adequate quantity of data, having a a relevant a feature set that has relevant variables, right? Like having proper um, data quality to data integrity, you don't have that. The system, no matter how complex or 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 or, or sophisticated it is, will produce poor outcomes. That's garbage in, garbage out. And and so the ethical consideration here is well-being. Like if 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 our intention is to produce well-being through the through the use of the technology then that's clearly not serving that purpose because ultimately it's producing har potentially harmful or bad outcomes um, in that situation um, yeah so i mean think all of those uh all of those factors are ethical factors in the in the paper in the in the review and the study uh we also sort of talk a little bit more about um you know a community-led uh, innovation in the space. And so actually starting with those impacted families with lived experience and working with communities to develop appropriate data intensive technologies that can support um, this area is so important. Uh, one you know, prospect, which I think is in a sense being developed right now, 
is is this this idea that we can actually sort of work with uh, communities to have good longitudinal data to to to, um, to to ultimately build systems that that have uh, a capacity to support positive and family-led outcomes uh, when you think about the kind of care situation. Um, and that, that takes a very deliberate and longer-term point of view of how we are going to actually marshal our capacity to process information for the social good. But it's, it's nonetheless, I think, um, a, a direction that we, we need to really think about because it, it, it just isn't, it, it isn't in a sense um, justifiable to just say, okay, well, you've got a predictive risk model, you can dump a bunch of data into it and use it to manage or control you know, a given uh, social situation. That's that's not that's not a responsible way to approach innovation. Yeah, and and that the going back to that emphasis of the importance of the data, the starting point. Uh, when you said you know the garbage in, garbage out, just making sure that there's that good quality of data, good quality of whatever it is you're putting into the system is is so important. If you don't mind me asking, how did you get to this? Um, like, how did you get into this topic of the application of AI tech and, and ethical considerations into um, social care because it, it just seems so fascinating combining and and I know it's I don't want to use all these buzzwords but combining AI and um, health care and AI but I mean just how did you yeah it's, it's fascinating. So yeah I mean you know much much of the work that we do at the at the Turing Institute is um, responsive to uh, the needs that are arising in, in our communities and so uh, this was actually the this project came came up uh, as as the result of of a, of a, of a, a Nesta call um, that they had put out uh, because what works um, for children's uh, uh, what works for children's social care they, they were in a sense um, uh, starting a project that that looked into these issues and. Uh, and so it really was, it was responding to, to that need in the community, much as, as a lot of our other work is uh, when, we, when we sort of enter into thinking about cr uh, criminal justice or, you know, you know more recently we've, we've, we've explored some, uh, some on, on facial recognition systems. Uh, the, we're, we have a project um, where we're looking at um, intercultural potentials for thinking about inter AI interculturally, so thinking about it in the wider uh, frame. How do we? How do you think about things like privacy, agency, and trust in an intercultural context? That's a UKRI-funded project that we have um, that we're working with uh, our uh, co Japanese colleagues um, at Riken um, in Japan to to think when, kind of in that intercultural context. When does that study? Uh, when do you conclude that study? Because I'd love to have you come back and talk about that because that's a very um, it's a very fascinating topic. Yeah. Well, we're we're. We've we've started and and we're we're kind of leaning into the research right now. It's uh, okay. I think it started in January, um, yeah. and uh, it's been very interesting because one of the one of the areas that 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 we've been trying to think through um, in the context of COVID nineteen is how say relationships of social trust have um, uh, affected the uh, effectiveness of public health responses in different. Um, socio-cultural environments. So say the public health response to the first wave uh, in the UK's context and, and the, the application of digital technologies there and, and think about the um, levels of social trust 
and the effectiveness of the public health response in Japan or other parts of Asia. And it, this is a really important, I think, area to think about because there are kind of salient differences that make a difference uh, that, that can inform us uh, in ways that um, would I think help to to sort of understand where things might be going wrong on our on on the on the UK side or where things are going you know wrong on the other side and how do we kind of think comparatively in a productive way about using technology and and responding to crisis uh, so yeah so that's been a a first step in that research so yeah we're we're hopefully we're it's a, a two I think two and a half year project and so what we'll be kind of you know. Taking it and running with it with our with our, our colleagues at the University of Tokyo and, and the other kind of uh, places there. Amazing. Well, I'm going to look out for your first publication when you put um, on this study in this area, because I, I really I'm very interested in that. And 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 we you mentioned COVID-19 because um, I've got a, a study with a, a collaborator in America where we're wanting to explore the impact of misinformation. Mm. Um, around healthcare um, mm. since uh, COVID-19. Uh, and actually, I just want to talk to you about that. So mm. has mm. there been any insight on how COVID-19 has impacted, and I'm going to say it in a very broad sense, but impacted tech um, and the demand for tech um, and uh, tech potential in, in terms of, um, as you said, okay, you've alluded to it as well, talks about it as well in terms of like understanding of trust, but has there been any insight on the ethical implications of technology, things like AI and use in COVID, mm, um, mm. not just research, but just anything, just in, in everything that COVID encompasses, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things, uh, one of the one of the early parts of of this this year was dedicated um, in the ethics theme for me to, to actually writing a paper, uh, it's called Tackling um, COVID-19 through responsible AI innovation, um, five steps in the right direction. And uh, so in that paper, you know, I kind of go over some of the, the, the kind of, I would say, exceptional hazards that arise in the context of a public health emergency. So we can, you know, we can think of things, for instance, like um, in, in the innovation environment, the urgency to produce results and how that might affect um, the you know the quality of the work that's being done in the innovation, but but there are there are many others. I mean, there's the, the uh, obviously the disparate um, impact of uh, COVID nineteen on you know minority ethnicities and you know what we call BAME communities, and how uh, there is a, in a sense a com, you know a, a potential compounding factor where s some of the patterns of discrimination that find their way into automated systems. Um, are, in a sense, adding to already disparate impacts of COVID-19 on these communities, potentially. And so that is a real issue that we need to think about. And then the, there are other issues that, that arise um, with COVID-19 in the innovation ecosystem. Think about also um, issues of uh, consent in dis distressed environments and how, we, how are we able to kind of responsibly use, collect and use data in these situations where um, in, in clinical environments, in environments where um, uh, both practitioners but also patients are in extreme distress, how do how do how do how do we responsibly come to use data for for those you know most I would say uh, most uh, essential and dignified data points, which are the, the the victims of COVID nineteen? Like how do we treat that? 
in, a, in an appropriately respectful way when, when we think about how, how we're going to effectively process the data to, to help the situation. Um, so yeah, I think, I mean, other issues uh, that, I, that I would really flag about uh, the, the situation of COVID-19, um, digital divides are a huge uh, uh, sort of uh, point that we need to think about, both global and local digital divides. So think about how, um, I know before we came on, you, you mentioned like the, this possibility for digital innovation to, to, to make certain things more accessible to those who aren't able to access services, right? Because we're want to expose ourselves by going out to the clinic, you know, to the clinic. Um, yeah, I, that's absolutely a, a sort of a point of forward progress that's being made. But at the same time, that's also we need to think about, like, what about all of the those who don't have adequate sort of Internet or, or access to uh, devices that would enable them to, to use M Health mobile health solutions? And and, and that's something that um, is, is a really big issue. Uh, think about also with digital contact tracing, this whole kind of um, phenomenon, right, that, that arose. Like, we really need to think about who is benefiting, right, from, from digital contact tracing and tracking technology. Because yeah. not everybody has mobile devices or has the resources to have mobile devices. Um, and not everybody um, is a native in using them, right? So we have a lot of elderly population, people in the elderly population who just don't don't know how to use them, don't use them. Um, and so you've got these kind of local digital divides that we really need to be um, sufficiently aware of. And then stepping out and, and widening the periscope, there's also global digital divides. divides. So think about the, the research environments um, on, on the global scale. And a lot of times during past um, public health crises, what has happened is um, high-income countries with a lot of research infrastructure um, has so many uh, advantages about marshalling data, about um, you know using data in well-resourced research environments. Um, when compared with middle-income countries, where the same sorts of research infrastructures and 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 educational backgrounds doesn't necessarily exist. And, and it's been the case in the past that oftentimes the, those who are, who are developing data sets in low and middle income countries, crucial data sets um, that, that, that they're working hard to produce and curate and make sure they become available for public health purposes, ultimately don't become the beneficiaries of the research because it's actually, you know, in other parts of the well, you know, well-heeled, well-funded world that that this this you know the the, the data is being used extracted used and marshaled to to produce innovation and it's 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 this is the case this is our situation with covid-19 that hasn't changed and so it's it's a it's a sort of a crucial um, part of of being pro sort of progressively minded in in the research community to think about forming meaningful partnerships between the 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 well-resourced research institutions and the less well-resourced research institutions in, in other parts of, of the world and if we don't do that we'll just perpetuate the, the digital divides that you know will have you know uh, faster and and more widely available treatments in some parts of the world and and not in others and it, it's just gonna um continue the cycles of of 
dis- you know, literally discrimination and poverty that, that, that lead to poor health outcomes for those who, who, who are marginalized. Yeah, and it's it, these are conversations that we had, not you and I, you know, we in a global sense have had prior to COVID. Um, and I think th- those conversations have not, I don't want to say they've, been, they've fallen on deaf ears because there are um, mechanisms to try and support like equitable partnerships between lower middle income countries and high, higher income countries to pull resources together, you know, you know, work in a kind of in a synergistic partnership. But um I don't feel that maybe, well, this is again, my humble opinion, but I, I don't feel that there's been this, I mean, no, I'll start that again, because actually we've, we've, none of us have lived through a pandemic like this before. So this situation is where you've really, it, it's brought kind of like the world together where you realize mm. that we all need to have access in some capacity. And I like what you said there, like that responsible, you know, doing things in a responsible fashion, but we all need to, globally in order to try and move forward and, and get rid of this virus, find treatment, this, like, we all need to come together and understand what each part of the world is doing and how can we all support each other. But if there isn't that, um, mechanism and appreciation for that importance then you have that struggle and uh, when you're talking about the um responsible sourcing of of clinical data and things from you know from patients who've experienced covid it just got me thinking about henrietta Lacks. i don't know if you remember she um many years ago but she's the the um, individual that had cervical cancer and that's why we've used healer cells and the cell line with you know it was taken from her without her permission her family didn't know uh healer cells were used to cure polio to help get treatment for polio it's like i mean i used healer cells in my phd you know and it's like the go-to cell line that everyone used and it's only in the last uh maybe decade or so where there's been more research saying actually what is healer and the the interesting thing with that is, you know, everything was in plain sight, healer for mm. Henrietta Lacks. And, and that's a big uh, example of irresponsible sourcing of, of information to, with good, quote unquote, good intentions, of course, but mm. irresponsible um, and and just the impact of that. And, and yeah, I guess that's something that in our, in our um, desperation in this time of, of COVID, this COVID time and our desperation to get treatment to find a cure we have to make sure and I really like how you highlight that we just doing things in a responsible fashion um you know um okay so we're coming to the end of the um episode I'm always sad I I, I don't want everyone to think I just say this all the time like oh I'm really sad but I really I feel like I could talk to you forever about this but um we've all got things to do <laughs> but uh so first thing the, the three point three uh questions I would like to ask you just as we conclude this so do you feel, or what are your thoughts about this statement? Do you feel that people should be scared? I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I mean, I, I don't think people should be scared, um, just in the in the sense that we talked about before, as if it's you know some kind of un, unknown, powerful agency that's going to come take over the world. I think that's a that that's a would be a path, pathology rather than an an informed approach. I think that I think that we need, as a society or as societies, to um, do a better job at taking the reins of the technologies that we're building, and and that doesn't involve uh, fear; it involves empowerment, and it involves embedding um, innovation processes 
in democratic processes and in, in, in the decisions made by those who are affected by the technologies themselves. And so I think we, we, we need to take us, we need to take our starting point in, in that empowerment um, that, that communities have to, to drive the direction of travel um, for innovation rather than, rather than taking a fearful starting point. And, you know, it, it calls for some, some deeper transformations of our, of our social structures because there is, in a sense, a lot of privilege and a lot of, um, uh, you know, power behind how, how innovation works in the world, uh, power that marginalizes, power that discriminates. Uh, but I think we're at, you know, I mean, we're at a, a portal point right now where we, there are a lot of norms that are shifting in the wake of the pandemic and, and, and in our situation where we do have an opportunity to, as I said, to take the reins and, and, and govern our technologies, our AI technologies, our, our, our data intensive technologies in a, in a participatory way. Mm, thank you so much for that. And so what do you think is the future of AI? It's you know I think I think it's a difficult question. Uh, we uh, there's we've talked a lot uh, in in terms of, of of we in in those who are thinking about AI in, <laughs> in its history, we've talked a lot about how there are these sort of cycles of AI you know winters and springs and you know and and uh, and the winters are always caused by the kind of uh, building of expectations that don't quite fit with the level of of our technological efficacy. And, and I think that we're, we're, we're definitely at a point where there is, in a sense, a new tech bubble, where, where there's a lot of inflated expectations about what certain systems can or can't do. Um, and this goes to the, the kind of world of anthropomorphic projection and superintelligent agency and all, a lot of, all of the resources that are being dedicated to thinking about things like value alignment, et cetera. I think that that, that, that world, um, it is it is is a world that um, is it has a lot of uh, distraction in it from what it actually means now to be uh, able to use these technologies responsibly to aid our progress in achieving public good to sustainable development goals. I think um, rather than focusing on that kind of area of artificial general intelligence. Um, we should be really thinking about more narrow applications uh, that that will support. Um, I mean, there, there are there are so many potential benefits of using uh, these these types of algorithmic systems to address uh, ecological and environmental issues. To 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 think uh, about better ways of 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 having equitable agriculture in the world. Um, other supportive ways of using AI and machine learning to um, address real social problems that we face, mm -hmm. and and so I think the good the the good the sort of good future the the good possible future is to increasingly think about machine learning and AI um, as a kind of public utility, a, a kind of resource that needs to be drawn upon, as I said before, in a democratic way to address real social problems. One of the things that we we often don't talk about is that technology isn't geopolitically uh, delimited, right? So, like, there, the the technology, machine learning technology isn't, you know, British or European or American or Chinese. No, machine learning 
technology is a, an affordance of our species. And until we uh, step over that hurdle of, of, of thinking in a very narrow way about the interests of our country or the interests of, of, our, uh, of, of our company, um, we, we won't uh, fully uh, use our technologies in, in, in the appropriately responsible and ethical ways. And so uh, thinking about where AI is going in the future of AI, the hope is that as we um, come to uh, deeper understandings of, of that universal species level character of our technologies, we, we, we will be able to shed some of the, the sort of prejudices, some of the um, you know, biases, nationalistic biases, other biases that, um, that cause us to misappropriate our, our, our capacities in technology. Thank you for that. And um, just as a last point, if from everything we've spoken about today, and we've spoken about so much, and it's been so um, it's been so important. But could you just, as we close, give us your take home? What would you say are the key take home messages from uh, today's conversation? Well, I think first that, that I just I love talking to you. I mean, it's been really <laughs> nice to, to to sort of explore Thank this. You. Thing, you know. Do, it's not, it's not, you know, a, a lot of times we just have our kind of nose in, in, in the right. laptop and the books and we're trying to like, you know, write what we need to write and, and, and you know, to do the deliverables in our research, right? But it's yeah. nice to have, you know, the wider ranging conversations. And I, and I think that for me, these sorts of conversations are, are, are so important in general uh, because we, we need to think, um, with the wide, wider angled lens, in order to really be responsible about how how we how we use AI and machine learning systems, and so that's I think the 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 fact that we're able to to to, to range beyond to just the specifics and talk about the bigger picture issues is is one key takeaway. Uh, I think also um, if I could just uh, flag the importance of, of of public you know public engagement, what, the, the commitment that you're making in doing this podcast to me and, and why I'm, you know, why I think it's important for us to be here, which is just, we do need to improve um, our, uh, dis, our sort of public discourse on, on, tech, on AI technology. Because I do think there, there are a lot of um, mis, sort of misconceptions about what's actually going on with um with art you know artificial intelligence and and i'll just say um just one last brief comment within the in the uh ethics and machine learning and children's social care research that we did uh and also in the we the alan turing institute and the information commissioner's office wrote the ex sort of project explain explainability guidance um which was published in i think in may and uh, in both of those um projects we uh, we basically um, had a, a public engagement where we we went out and and in the children's social care uh, research we we talked to families with limits um, and uh, and had a whole day where we went through what is machine learning and took went step by step through what what's actually going on in technologies and in, in the ICO Turing project, we had a, a few days of citizens juries um, mm. where we actually had, you know, a day or half a day of education on certain things and then more kind of enrichment and then, you know, collaboration discussion amongst, you know, 
representative, representative set of citizens. And in, in both of those instances, the, one of the takeaways was common, which is that there was a transformative effect on citizens where they did feel that once they understood what's actually going on in the statistics or in, in the modeling, it, it, and, it, and it shed that kind of mystery of what AI is, they felt empowered. They felt like they could make you know, better sort of judgments and decisions about how they would have their values steer the course of those uh, whatever technologies. And so I would say my second takeaway is just that um, the, this is a the, the public discourse dimension of this is is super important and and it's something that you know it just needs to it needs to continue on and and, and build off of itself. Thanks for joining us this week on the Monday Science Podcast. Make sure to visit our website. Uh, details are in the episode description where you can subscribe to make sure that you never miss the show. Uh, so catch up with you next week. Bye.